Chile is in the midst of rewriting its constitution. It's a process that will affect every aspect of Chilean life, even down to its water. Chile is in a mega drought that's lasted more than a decade. 2021 could match 2019 for the driest year on record. And the current constitution means access to water goes to the highest bidder. But all that could be changing this year. So today, we're updating a story from May 2020 about the man-made roots of Chile's water crisis. I want to start with a simple question. How's the weather in Santiago? Bizarre. The weather in Santiago is absolutely bizarre. Lucia Newman covers Latin America for Al Jazeera. And more and more every year, that includes the weather. Last week, there was a rare sound on the streets of Santiago, Chile's capital. We've had a bit of rain and it's become cold, but it should be winter by now, and it should have rained a lot. You look up at the sky and it looks cloudy, and you think, okay, finally today it might rain, and it doesn't. This year it hasn't rained yet, except for a few drops. It's been just dry, 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 and hot. Absolutely abnormal. Lucia's been covering this bizarre weather for years. Chile's been in a drought, actually a super drought, for the last decade. And Lucia's crisscrossed the country to follow the story. And in one place after another, the water is gone. I'm standing in an irrigation canal that used to be full of water until just a few years ago. I'm standing in front of one of scores of emergency water outlets that have been set up around the Chilean capital where drinking water has been cut. I'm standing in what was the Runge Reservoir. Once upon a time, there were sailboats and jet skis here, but now, as you can see, there's nothing but dry dirt. There is water in Chile. The question is... Who has it, who doesn't, and how hard that is to change. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. You might be thinking this is climate change, and it is. But this is in a country with swimming pools, lush green lawns, farms full of oranges, grapes for wine, cherries, every kind of produce you can think of, and avocados. Villagers in Chile are locked in a fight for clean water, claiming farms supplying UK supermarkets are depleting local supplies. That's because avocado farming requires massive water use. Americans ate over 2 billion pounds of the fruit. That's over 1 billion kilos. And while it might be good for health-conscious eaters, things are not looking so great for those who actually grow it. Lucia covers that side of Chile too. But it comes with a risk. They have guards, we could see them, perched up on the hills, and there have been stories of how they fire on people that try to take pictures and how they've been very aggressive towards journalists. But we got up as close as we could get to get a sense of how it compares to everything that is around it. There are two different worlds living side by side. When the coronavirus outbreak started spreading, Chile was in the midst of mass economic protests. And suddenly, it had to shift gears to the public health crisis. Chilean President Sebastián Piñera had fairly standard advice for the nation. 
pueden tener la seguridad Be assured de que hemos adoptado that we have adopted all the required measures necessary at this time to take care of everyone's health and well-being. And we will continue to do so as the evolution of the coronavirus requires it. But there was one recommendation that many Chileans could not follow. And that was to wash their hands. So there is a new factor that's involved in this drought story, and that is the novel coronavirus. How is the lack of water having an impact on that crisis? You have to keep in mind that Chile is a country that has more than 4,000 kilometers. It is the longest and skinniest country in the world. Water comes from the frozen peaks of the Andes. As the ice melts, pristine streams form, coursing through the striking geography of this long and narrow country. So it is like a spaghetti, and the top of the spaghetti is very, very dry. It's the Atacama Desert, the driest desert in the world. And then as you get into the middle, you get the Central Valley, and that is a Mediterranean climate, or at least it used to be. And then in the south, as you get closer to Antarctica, there's lots of water. So it's a very uneven distribution of water, and that impacts the coronavirus. Because what's changed is that now in the center part of Chile, where the majority of the population lives, there is also tremendous shortages of water and thousands of families that have no running water either. So they barely have enough to drink, they don't have enough to flush the toilet, and they certainly don't have enough to wash their hands all the time. So they're afraid of the coronavirus for obvious reasons. Now, obviously, plenty of people do have water to wash their hands. And I wanted to understand that gap between who can turn on the tap and who can't. So I asked Lucia, how does your average person get water? If you live in a city, yes, you turn on the tab and you get water. And it can be more expensive or less expensive. Chile has the highest water prices in the whole region, albeit good potable drinking water, those who have it. You can just drink it out of the tab, but it's extremely expensive. And extraordinarily, the closer you live to the source of the water, the more expensive the water is, because it's usually areas that are less populated. But there are other areas that are rural that don't have that water. Lucia says people in those areas get their water not from the tap, but from tanks. The water is rationed, and it comes in on trucks, maybe once a day, if it arrives at all. I've talked to lots of families that say, I'm supposed to get the water at three in the morning. So they have to get up and turn the water tab on, try to fill barrels or whatever they have with the water. Other times they have to buy it. It doesn't just come automatically. And even in Santiago, we've had times when there have been problems with the water system. So you see these scenes, you meet these people dealing with this severe shortage of water. There are some really stark visuals in all of your stories. It's a case of a picture saying a thousand words. At this time of year, the Andes Mountains should have been covered with snow, which in turn in the spring melts and fills the rivers and the lagoons. But with the deficit of rain now at 80%, these mountains now look as though they've just had a little bit of salt sprinkled on the top. So there's this one region, Petorca. You see this dusty, cracked land. Even the cacti are wilting. And then right next to it, you see completely lush, green patch of land. Why is there such a stark difference? How does that happen? 
Petorca was one of the most fertile communities in the Central Valley of Chile. It's about uh, two hours from Santiago. And it was lush, it had hundreds of thousands of families, and it started to shrivel up. Shrivel up and shrivel up until now, it looks literally like a desert. You can't believe it. The prickly pears, which are very important in Chile, people eat lots of them. They're, they're from the cactus plant, and it's pretty hard for a cactus to dry up, but it was shocking to see them. And then you just look a little bit up to the hills, and it's all green and beautiful kilometers and kilometers of avocados or orange groves or cherry groves. And these belong to the agribusiness. And these people have the water that nobody else has there. Lucia and her team wanted a visual, but they couldn't just walk up to the plantations and set up a camera. Remember the guards she mentioned, the stories she'd heard about shooting at photographers. She and her team needed an N, and they had it in Rodrigo Mondaca, a longtime water rights activist and an agricultural engineer. And so he sort of took us on a tour of these places that were hardest hit. And we took a drone with us because many of these areas you are not allowed to go into. So there's this one scene when you're out in in this desert area where you stumble on a big irrigation tube. Do you remember that? Yes, absolutely. Hard to uh, forget. We were walking around an area just below one of these groves of avocados with Rodrigo Mundaca, and we saw a massive tube, a huge tube that went from a man-made well and up the hill to irrigate the, the avocado grove. And when we saw inside the well, it was totally dry, and this tube had come from the aquifer underneath of a river that right next to us that was completely dry by now. And it was a totally illegal way of extracting water. This is highway robbery. To capture underground water even after the river has gone dry. It is illegal, but the state turns a blind eye. To get to the water, you have to drill. Once the rivers are dry, you have to perforate. In the old days, you would perforate 10 meters and you would have water. Now you have to perforate 100, 200 meters. The only ones who can afford to do that are people with lots of money. And what the locals told us is that if you started digging through the shrubs and all the dry land, you could see these uh, tubes everywhere. It's illegal to do it, but nobody stops these large companies from basically stealing the water. So there are some people who still have all the water they need And you've got 70% or 80% of Petorca's rural community without any water. She met one person after another whose livelihood had dried up. But there was one who stuck with her, Doña Deminga, an older resident of Petorca. Doña Dominga doesn't have enough water to wash her hands, which is regarded as the first line of defense against the coronavirus. We found her trying to water what was her her garden with the leftovers of the water from uh, the washing machine, so it had soap in it. And she lifted the top of a barrel and showed us the tiny amount of water left in this barrel where the water she 
gets once a week is kept. And she didn't, she had barely enough to drink for herself. And she still was waiting for the water. And I, had, I gave her the water I had. I had brought, you know, a liter of water with me in the car. In the story, Doña Dominga is looking at her little patch of onions and plants and says she doesn't blame her lack of water on the drought. I would ask the government to leave some of the water that all the fruit groves are using to us so that we can live too. She blames it on the system. The distribution of the water, the hoarding, the lack of oversight. Lucia says that's where almost everyone she met in Petorca has laid the blame. If you could say that it was just the drought, you wouldn't see the green hills, the green lush hills, while the people down below have, don't even have a glass of water or, or enough to flush their toilets. There, there is clearly something wrong here that goes way beyond a drought. And righting that wrong is not a simple task because water isn't a right, at least not in Chile. It's a commodity to be bought and sold. And changing that isn't as simple as changing the law. It goes back to one of the longest chapters in Chile's history, the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. The problem in Chile is that the government is part of the problem. The state is part of the problem because Chile has a bizarre water law enshrined in the Constitution. In 1982, under the military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet, Chile began what some people would call the most extreme of the free market models, even more extreme, if you like, than the one in the United States. That's what the former Pope John Paul II called savage capitalism. And Chile is an example of that. The United States played a direct role in that legacy because the economists who advised Pinochet were trained there. They're known as the Chicago Boys. Some in Chile later called them piranhas. So named for where they did graduate work, the University of Chicago, where they studied the doctrines of privatization and free markets under its Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman. I, I did make a trip to Chile, and in fact, I did meet with Mr. Pinochet, but I was never advised by him. I never got a penny from the Chilean government, but I am more than willing to share in the credit for the extraordinary job that our students did down there. Empowered by a dictator and moved into key positions of government, they had an unprecedented ability to take ideas learned in America and use them to reshape the Chilean economy. Taxes, tariffs, and subsidies were cut. Education, health care, pensions, the state airline, all privatized. Hundreds of state-owned companies and public utilities were sold off. After many years of repression and economic instability, Chile's wealth did grow, and many saw it as a free market success story. But its inequality skyrocketed. Although Chile has been celebrated as one of Latin America's most economically successful countries, it also ranks as the most unequal among the world's most developed nations. And incomes of the richest are more than 25 times those of the poorest. So for Chileans, you could say the water crisis is a drop in the bucket. And it was all this inequality that prompted the economic protests. But Lucia says the farmers have been protesting much longer than that. They've been doing it for years, but they're protesting more and more as this crisis gets worse and worse. It's not a question of the current conservative government versus the previous more left-leaning governments. It's been all the governments have turned a blind eye 
there hasn't been a real uh, awareness of their plight until now, until Chileans have seen this year just how bad the situation has gotten. One of the most powerful images she mentioned was a silent protest in Petorca. The skulls of the farmer's dead animals hung up in a row on a dirt road. It was shocking to see the heads of goats and horses and cows spearheaded on top of poles on a dusty uh, road outside of uh, the Petorca area. These animals had died of thirst. You could see the teeth of the animals, little bits of their hair that were still left from the manes. And you could just imagine how much they suffered, these animals dying slowly, and how much the owners must have suffered and are still suffering because they depended on these animals. They had a relationship with these animals uh, and they were their livelihood. So all of them were dying slowly. Lucia mentioned that multiple governments have turned a blind eye to the water issue. She says that's because it's profitable. Many politicians are landowners or invested in agribusiness, and there's a revolving door between government and the private sector. But Chile's protest movement changed the political calculus. They're now beginning to be forced to think about it very seriously because the Chilean public at large has become much, much more aware of the problems with the current status quo in terms of water. Chile's protests crystallized into a movement to completely redo the Constitution. And in 2021, that process began. A new one will be drafted by a constituent assembly in a process running from July 2021 into next year. The assembly will need a two-thirds majority to approve the draft constitution. It would then go to a mandatory public vote to ratify it in 2022. One of the key things that they want to change, of course, is the article that deals with water, health, education, the things that people need the most and that are supposed to be public rights. A Greenpeace survey found that 81 of the 155 delegates had pledged to enshrine water as a human right. And the free market is also anticipating change. Chile's biggest water company stock has plummeted since 2019. But the change that people want, Lucia said, is not total deprivatization. They're asking for a rational system. We are saying that a new constitution must consecrate water as a public and human right. The problem isn't avocados, but our distorted economic model. The people who live in Petorca, they're fighting for the right to have water for their own personal use, accessible, clean water, and also for their farms to make a living to be able to survive. They believe that it can't be a commodity to be bought and sold. And of course, they're fighting against the over-allocation of the water because that's the other thing. The, the water board has been incredibly inefficient. When there was enough water for everyone, it didn't matter if, if the agro-business sector had all the water it needed. But now it makes a big difference. So I want to end by asking you about the future as much as you can tell us from your position there. What is the future of Chile? without water, or at least without the amount of water that people are used to having. If climate change continues to impose this, this devastating drought and it doesn't begin to rain, then what has always been the lush, fertile central valley of Chile will no longer exist. 
And a lot of these agribusinesses will have to move south, closer and closer to Antarctica, which sounds bizarre right now, but you know this to be a freezing part, and other areas that are now beginning to feel almost Mediterranean. So it, it will completely change the map of this country. It will become more and more spaghetti, where instead of one-third being the desert, one-third being Mediterranean, and the other third being very wet and cold, two-thirds of it will be desert. So as we mentioned, you've been covering this issue for such a long time. When you come back from one of those areas that's now, you know, suffering from a lack of water and drought conditions, does it change the way you're thinking about water? Are you able to just freely get a glass of water when you come back home to Santiago? You know, the whole idea of how we use water has changed so dramatically. When I was certainly one of those that would take long showers and leave the water running when I brushed my teeth. But ever since I've started seeing how little water there is just in the areas that are, that are around me here in Santiago, I've been much, much more conscious of, of how sacred this water is. And, and I put on a timer for my showers and I, and I feel very lucky that I still can get water out of the tab, good, clean water, but I'm wondering how long that will last. More and more Chileans are wondering the same, clearly not enough. You know, we were brought up thinking that water was an, an eternal resource that we would have forever. And people are selfish. As long as it's not impacting them personally, they have a hard time, you know, recalibrating their habits. Chile has to completely rethink so many things from the way that the water is, is bought and sold and distributed to the way we use it. The idea of having swimming pools, lush green parks all over Santiago, that's going to have to change. And, uh, and I think that's what we need to do across the board. It's something we need to start doing now, before it's too late. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke and Priyanka Tilve, with Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Dina Kisve, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Tom Finton is our editor. Aya Elmilek is the engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. Special thanks to Ivan Torres. We'll be back.